0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Alright, well let's do this. Let's uh, let's look at First Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 23 and read all the way down through chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to carry into just the first chapter of verse 11 And the reason we're doing that is you know that the Bible, when it was written, it was written the Old Testament primarily in Hebrew and then the New Testament primarily in Greek. And there weren't these chapter and verse divisions. So when Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, he's not putting like chapter 1, verse 2 or whatever. Just like you'd write a letter, a personal correspondence. But then later on when the English translators of the Bible for the King James Version, they put the chapters and the verses in there. And they did a great service to us as people because now we can open up the Bible to specific points. It makes it a lot easier to find scriptures. But in some of the verses they didn't really, they tried as best as they could to kind of find the natural break in thought to start a new chapter. In a few places they didn't quite get it right and one of them is probably here in chapter 11. So we're going to read the first chapter, first verse of chapter 11. Um, Today, here's this one overarching thought that I want to give you about the point of today's passage. Remember, chapters 8, 9, and 10 kind of go together where Paul is speaking to strong Christians and encouraging them to prefer weaker Christians in their conscience over their own freedom in Christ. The issue is whether or not these particular Corinthian Christians were free to eat food, meat in particular, that was offered to idols. And so there's this kind of like this demon meat out there that that, um, some Christians were saying, no, we can't eat this filet mignon that's been previously offered to this false god. And the stronger Christians are saying, ah, it's no big deal. I mean, there's no real false god anyway. There's only one god. And so we're free to do this. And Paul says to them, well, you're you're right, but you should esteem your weaker brother or sister's conscience over your freedom in Christ. And so that's the big argument that he's making in chapters 8, 9, and 10 that we've been working through meticulously for the past few weeks. And today he's going to cap off that argument by giving them a sort of big view of his philosophy of life, which is this. And this is the one thing that I want you to get today. I'm going to read through this text. going to make a few points. Then we've got five summary statements. Then we're going to respond to the word and song and, and communion, if that's the way you're led, and prayer. But here's, here's what I really want you to get today. It's this notion of that everything that we do as Christians is to, is to be oriented, to be governed, to be for the glory of God. And that that glory, that God being glorified in the universe, and in our lives, is actually not contrary to our pleasure, but it's actually the root of our pleasure. It's, it's actually where only true pleasure is found. But we have some work to do because we're, we're kind of, you know, we're Americans in the 21st century, and we aren't nearly as biblical as we should be, and so we got to do some work. Because when you say this word, the glory of God, that just sounds like a religious phrase, doesn't it? Just glory, just the word glory. Sounds sounds. sounds distant from us I've told you the story before that when I was just learning how to preach I was on staff church here in town and it was 1998 or so I'd gotten out of the army um, still had a short haircut I guess I still kinda have a short haircut but anyway it was the first couple times that I was preaching it was a little rough and I would start and I'd preach and, and, and it was like Wednesday night Sunday night services there's just a few people in the room and didn't have a lot of experience. Didn't really know what I was talking about. But there was this one brother in the congregation who would always just encourage me. You know, you'd make a point, and then it, nobody it seems like they were responding, and just, you could just hear crickets chirping in the background, you know. And this one brother, his name was J.C. Green. Uh, not this church. We, we, this, this, this was a long time ago. And he would just, when he sensed that I needed a little juice, he would just, in the back of the congregation, he'd be sitting back there with his arms folded, and he'd say, Glory. <laughs> just when I needed it. Glory! And so uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about glory today. Uh, well, let me pray, and then we'll work our way through this text. Oh, Lord, we, we need your help. I need your help. I am a pardoned rebel. I deserve your just and righteous punishment and wrath for my rebellion against you. But in your shocking kindness, you have made me alive. You've given me a new heart and a mind and you've called me to preach and to think about and to explain your words to your people so Lord would you help me now as I do that Lord I pray for people that are already Christians in this room that you again as we pray almost every week that you would stir our affections for Jesus that we would see him more clearly and that our lives would come into more conformity of his will and way in our life and Lord I pray for people that are not yet Christians in this room that you would do the greatest miracle of all, that you would bring their dead hearts to life in Christ Jesus, that you would give them the very thing that you command from them, which is repentance and faith, so that they might turn from their sin and trust in themselves and turn towards belief in Jesus, in his beauty and glory. And I pray these things for our joy and for the renown of your name. I pray it in that great name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's read. I'm going to stop, make some points along the way, and then we'll settle on five summary quick points. Paul writes in verse 23, and he's writing in quotations now, so he's echoing back to them a sort of cultural slogan that he's then sort of clarifying. Because remember, they had written a letter to him, and now this letter is in response to their letter to him. (coughs) And so, (coughs) excuse me, in verse 23, he is starting off with, repeating back of their sort of flawed cultural slogan where he says in verse 23 all things are lawful and quote repeating back to them what they had said to him and he's clarifying it but not all things are helpful again all things are lawful so they're sort of arguing to Paul that because they're Christians and because they've been freed by what Jesus has done on the cross which is true now they can kinda do whatever they want and Paul's saying well yes you're free in Christ You're free, but yet there's other things that should govern our lives. And so then he qualifies it again, but not all things build up. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then verse 25, he comes back to this issue of eating meat that has been offered in uh, pagan temples. And he says in verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience because what's happening here is most of the good meat, in fact probably all of the good meat and meat was a delicacy in that day you'd, you'd, you couldn't just get meat as freely as we could now and it was, it, was, it was something that people wanted to eat and really most of the butcher shops the deli shops were, were connected to a pagan temple and so because most of Corinth is a Greek culture worshiping false Greek gods they would sacrifice animals as a sort of pagan ritual dedicate that animal to this false pagan god and then they would offer some of the meat to the pagan god and then they would not want to waste all of that good meat and so then they would sell it at a butcher shop like right next to the pagan temple and so virtually all of the meat that would be sold on the streets in corinth just the butcher shop virtually all of that meat very likely probably was at some point offered to an idol and now the issue in 8, 9, and 10 is Christians are saying, should we partake in this meat that's been offered to pagans? And of course, we went through Paul's, I just mentioned a second ago. His reasoning is, yes, you're free to eat that meat, but if it's going to upset the conscience of a weaker Christian, or it's going to be in a setting where it could potentially obscure the gospel and make an unbeliever wonder which God you really worship, you should forego your right to eat that meat and esteem your brother or sister greater than your own freedom and so now he's giving the situation where hey you're just alone by yourself you know doing your shopping on saturday getting meat in the market don't be so fussy or kind of gunked up here that you have to ask or be overly scrupulous about where this meat come from He just you're you're free to eat it so that's what he says in verse 25 so he's saying there's a situation here where you're not with an unbeliever that could be tripped up by this, or you're not with a friend who is weaker and might be wondering about your testimony. You're just at the meat market buying your filet mignons for that Saturday night. Game's on earlier. You're going to watch them play, and then you're going to come back, and you're going you're to eat your steak, man. That's what you're going to eat. You're going to eat your chips, your baked potato. Gonna, anyway, never mind. I'm, 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 I'm venturing off the rails here. So he says, eat whatever, verse 25, is sold in the meat market without raising question on the ground of conscience. Don't be an insecure, silly Christian asking the butcher, was this meat offered to Zeus? No, he's just saying, eat it. Eat it. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Verse 27. Then he says, if you get an invitation to somebody's house, listen to this. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So so he's saying here, Christians, underlying point here is that we should be people that are involved with people who aren't Christians, right? Sometimes the longer you become a Christian, the more sort of insulated you become to the culture. And have you ever been in like a Christian culture where there's... You're with a friend that's a Christian, and then there's another person there that's a friend of yours that's maybe not a Christian, and you're sort of embarrassed by how they're acting. Maybe they're using some profanity or saying some things. Have you ever been in that sort of tense situation? But because these two Christians are sort of not secure in their faith, they're really nervous about, oh my gosh, what's my Christian fin- friend gonna think of me? Because I have a friend who's in the world and is, you know, dropping some bad words, and oh my gosh, what's I mean, isn't that just insecure ridiculousness? I mean, Paul is saying here, you should, receive, you should have friendships outside of your little circle of faith. And in fact, Jesus was accused of being a, a drunk and a glutton because he ate with all the party animals. He went to the frat party. He went to the frat. He, he hung out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the drunkards. And that's one of the accusations against him that he was a party animal. He wasn't, of course, but he was, as we sang, Hallelujah, what a friend of sinners Jesus is. And he calls people, his people, to be friends of sinners, but yet in such a way that they're not condoning or participating in that culture. But they're surrounding themselves as gospel lights in the midst of these broken places. And so, he says, if you go to somebody's house, they give you a dinner invitation, you go eat, they put a steak in front of you, don't be so finicky or, again, overscrupulous that you ask and offend your host, excuse me, uh, was, this, was this ribeye offered to Zeus or Aphrodite? He said, don't do that. Don't be silly. He says, you're free to eat that thing. But then he gives a qualification in verse 28. Let's keep reading. He says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice then don't eat it, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. And so what he's saying there is if you're maybe at the butcher shop and you, uh, you, you're, the person, maybe the butcher, knows that you're a Christian or you're at somebody's house and they're not a Christian and they know that you're a Christian and maybe they're saying to you, hey, I, I know you're a Christian and you probably don't want to eat this meat. This, this has been offered to Zeus or some false god course not false to them but we realize you're a christian so submit so do you want to eat this don't don't sort of maybe obscure the holiness of god and the witness of the gospel by just sort of letting the standard be lax and ah oh, whatever he's saying in that case don't eat it because that person is kind of wondering there what you're going to do and they're sort of aware of the situation and so he's saying in that case d- don't eat it for the sake of their conscience Right? So, again, esteeming your brother in Christ. Verse, verse 29. Or, or not just your brother in Christ, but even an unbeliever. <laughs> verse 29. I do not mean your conscience, but his. And then he says something that's kind of peculiar and hard to figure out unless you understand what Paul is saying here. And he says, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So let's think about that sentence now. It sounds almost contradictory. It sounds like Paul is saying um, that, that, uh, that he just made this point that, look, you're free in Christ, but don't partake in a situation where it's going to potentially upset somebody else's conscience, whether it's a Christian or an unbeliever. But then he sort of wraps up this paragraph by saying, yeah, but you know, you can do whatever you want. Don't, don't be limited by somebody else's conscience. So it's kind of saying like, it kind of sounds contradictory almost, like he's saying, hey, don't worry, uh, I mean be aware of somebody else's conscience but then it's like he's contradicting himself saying who cares about their conscience, don't be limited by it. What I think is going on here is if you if you go back up to verse 26 it look, look where it says um, in verse 20, 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, in verse 27 if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience But if someone says to you, this has been offered and sacrificed, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, you and for the sake of their conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. It's kind of like then that whole part there is a parenthesis. And so he's making this argument that, hey, you are free. Don't let your conscience be jacked up by some nitpicking Christian. But in situations where it might be a trouble to them or to the witness of the gospel, reserve, lay down your freedom so that you esteem their conscience and their development in Christ in the gospel better than your own freedom. And then he returns back to the freedom that we have in Christians in verses 29 and 30, where he says, look, don't let your liberty, don't let yourself be junked up by legalism. Don't let yourself be junked up by small-minded Christianity unless you're dealing with a weaker Christian or an unbeliever who might be tripped up by this. And so I think that's Why that seemingly disjointed little thing there on the end. It's kind of the rephrasing of the whole argument. And the middle part there is just a parenthesis. Now that I've thoroughly confused you, let's go on to verse 31. So now he caps off his argument. And this is what we're going to settle down on today. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, and not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let me read verse 31 again, and this is where we're going to settle our attention, just five quick thoughts about this verse. "So whether you eat or drink, or whatever, whatever you do. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Five quick thoughts on this, and then we'll respond to the Lord. But before those five thoughts, just an observation. It's just striking how casually we approach various seemingly everyday aspects of life in comparison to Paul. I want, you to, I want us to step back here for a second. There have been three chapters in the Bible in one of the most prominent letters in the New Testament called 1 Corinthians. And those three chapters have been about whether or not we should eat meat offered to false gods. Three chapters. Three. On this one issue that for us 2,000 years later we're like, what seriously and we just cherry-pick little verses out of the bible and we just land on one little thing that becomes kind of like our little quote for the day or whatever and we miss sort of the panorama and the the exhaustiveness of the scriptures that paul is so bound up in the gospel and its witness he he is so bound up in making jesus known and clear in every aspect of his life that he is willing to take a seemingly everyday instance like going to the butcher shop and dinner invitations. And he's, he's seeing the gospel hitting, even working its way down into meat. And he spends three chapters on it. And we as Americans just live so casually. Yeah, I got the big thing. I I raised my hand on Friday night at youth camp, and now I got a job, and I show up three out of four Sundays, and I'm kind of doing my thing. We just need to step back for a second and realize how comprehensive and how exhaustive and how thorough Paul's view of the lordship of Christ in, in his life, where he would spend three chapters, three chapters talking about whether or not you should have a steak, That's, that should give us pause, how we just blow past decisions in our day. And so five implications of doing whatever we do for the glory of God. Whatever you do. I love that word because I grew up in the valley in California where that word was invented. Whatever. 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 Whatever you do. Whatever. Whatever. Think about the comprehensiveness of that word, whatever. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Implication number one of this verse, We. this is not rocket science, friends. I will blow through some of these quickly. We exist for the glory of God. Do you realize how radically God-centered this universe is and everything in it? but by default, how sort of man-centered we are in our view? Do you realize how easy it is to come into a church and to be part of a community and has our instinct, think about what this particular place or this particular community or this particular relationship or this particular job has to offer us for our sort of betterment. We live as if these 70 or 80 or 90 years are ultimate. The universe and everything in it is radically God-centered. We exist for the glory of God. Listen to this verse: Romans eleven verse thirty-six, probably my favorite verse in the Bible. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Paul, the, the scriptures also say in Proverbs. Solomon writes this: that even the wicked, Proverbs sixteen four, even the wicked, has been created for some purpose it says this the Lord has made everything for its purpose even the wicked for the day of trouble so good and bad and every particle in between somehow has a purpose in the cosmic universal plan of God receiving all glory and friends be clear about this God will be glorified in your life God will be glorified in your life either through your obedience or through his judgment righteously over your disobedience. In a way that we don't always think about, God will be glorified in everything, in a sense. Does this mean that God takes pleasure in evil or pain or judging you when you do not obey him, ultimately, if you do not trust in Christ for your righteousness? No, but in a way, God can not take pleasure in anything, but then ultimately also be glorified in the end because as we sing, He is the God of all victory. There is a finality. There is a consummation of all things whereby God's name and holiness will not be besmirched or sullied in any way. Everything exists for the glory of God. Friends, do you realize that? Is your life sort of governed by that all-encompassing primary truth of the universe, that everything that is exists for God. Everything flows to Him. Everything in a sense is meant to glorify God. There is such comfort in that, but there is such, such awesomeness in that as well, friends. You exist for the glory of God, young lieutenant. You exist for the glory of God. Young lady, you exist for the glory of God. Young executive at the firm in Columbus, you exist for the glory of God. Your body was given to you, not so that it would dead end on you, but for the glory of God. Your hair color, your car that you drive, your 401k, your kid, your house, your your golf club, your your uh, your lawn, your your riding tractor or your little thing that just you know cuts the old school thing we just whatever however your your shoelaces exist for the glory of god your wallet exists For the glory of God, the the shirt that you're wearing, the lunch that you will have this afternoon, the, the chair that you are sitting on, the particles that comprise the oxygen that is pumping in and out of your lungs, even now, although some of you are holding your breath because you think I'm from Mars, everything exists. For the glory of God. And the sooner you get in the flow of the way things are, the more the way you think will line up with ultimate truth that everything, friends, everything, every mountain, every valley, everything exists for the glory of God. Point number two is devastatingly humbling to us is that we, by nature, are glory thieves. That's the way we're born. The Bible's clear that all of us have been born into sin because we're inheritors of our first parents' nature, Adam and Eve, who rebelled in the garden. And so by nature and by our own individual choice, we have all thumbed our noses at this glory. And we've tried to steal glory for ourselves we're glory thieves. And friends, by the way, that's, a, that's why morality, apart from trusting in Christ, that's why good works, apart from trusting in Christ, is sin and ultimately won't save you. Because do you see that if. if you trust in your relative morality compared to the next guy and say, well, I'm a pretty decent person. Why would God judge me? What you're doing is you're kind of making yourself sort of ultimate. You're making your relative goodness a God in a sense. You're trusting in that thing most primarily for your right standing with the creator of everything. And really just how treasonous is that when you kind of get down to think about it. That's why even the good that humans do apart from Christ really at its core is idolatrous. That's why the Bible says such Stinging things, like in Romans chapter 3 in Isaiah where it says, none of us do good. None of us do good, in a sense, apart from Christ, because even our good works, when they're not tethered to a response to the only good thing, which is what God has done on the cross in Christ, they become sort of idolatrous things that end on themselves, and you trust in yourself. You're... You're stealing glory from the creator of the universe saying, I got this. And we all do that. Whether it's it's an obvious sin or whether it's in religious self-righteousness, we're thieves of God's glory and that brings consequences. It brings the natural right and just condemnation of a good and holy creator for whom all things exist because we're trying to exist outside of his glory. That brings us to point number three. God's glory is most clearly seen in the gospel. God's glory is most clearly seen in the gospel. This is God's solution for our glory thievery. Let me read to you Colossians chapter 2, verses 13, 14, and 15. Listen to this. This is one of the most beautiful pictures and statements of the gospel in the entire scriptures. This would be a great verse to memorize. Colossians chapter 2. Verses 13, 14, and 15. Paul writes this to another church in Colossae, just like he wrote to the Corinthians. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, you're dead. This is what glory thievery does to human beings. It doesn't neutralize us. Look, there are no relatively good Americans. There are no moral people that make it to heaven apart from Christ. There is no amount of human righteousness that makes us good. We are all wicked rebels before Jesus saves us. And that, that rebellion has brought spiritual death, friends. Do you understand that? That is foundational understanding of, of just this biblical storyline is realizing our state apart from Christ. Do you realize the seriousness of that? And Paul says here that we're dead in our trespasses. That doesn't mean we're incapacitated or tied down or less than optimal or need self-improvement. We're dead. We're dead. We're dead. We're spiritually dead. Our hearts are dead. Sin has killed us. Sin has killed us. We're dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. But God made alive together with him. You, God made alive, if you're a Christian, together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so this is explaining what happens on the cross. This is what explains what's happening in the gospel, that you're dead in your sin. You're dead. All of us are dead. That's the way we start out. We can be physically alive, emotionally alive, but we are born rebels. And God, when he determines to save a human heart, he, by his Holy Spirit, when he saves a person, he gives them, the Holy Spirit comes, and it gives you life. It brings that dead heart to life. It brings life. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The gospel is preached and the life-giving power of the news of what Jesus has done on the cross, it hits the human heart as it is brought along by the Holy Spirit. And with that life comes simultaneously the gifts of repentance and faith. And that heart that was dead, that is now alive, is able to breathe. And the first breath of that human heart is turning away from itself and turning to Jesus in faith that's what it means to be born again you turn away from yourself and you turn towards faith in what Jesus has done and that faith is in what he has done on the cross as the sacrifice, the substitute for our sins it sees that as the only goodness the only merit that is worth anything to satisfy God's holiness and that new heart that God gives you gives you the ability to turn and trust this is spectacularly good news, friends, because if it were left up to us to turn and trust in and of ourselves, of our dead state, we could never do it. That's the scandal of the gospel. The gospel is giving you the very thing it requires. That's why John Bunyan, the old Puritan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, it's a great book, you should read it, buy it in the resource room and read it to your kids. It is a classic of Christian literature. He says about about this command of scripture, about the law of God that commands us to turn. It says says that, that the law of God commands him to run and work, but it gives me neither hands nor feet, but better news the gospel brings. It bids us to fly and gives us wings, friends. Do you see the nuance of how important that is? The gospel is not muster up goodness, do it. Come on, do it. Do it. Be the little engine that could. That's not the message of Christianity or the gospel. The message of the gospel is that you are dead. And when the gospel hits your heart, it gives you the very thing that it commands. It gives you life. So do you have ears to hear today? The gospel, when it hits your heart, it gives you, it brings the life that it requires. And that life is Faith and repentance. That life is belief in Jesus. Breathe, friends. Breathe. Have you never seen Jesus clearly? Have you never truly trusted in him? Oh, take heart, friends. Don't dig down deep beneath your own dead heart to see what is required of you. Look up and hear the life-giving message of Jesus that brings life that gives what it commands and believe in Jesus and in that message and in that cross and in that spectacularly good news is where the glory of God is most clearly seen. Which then brings us to point number four, which is something that is so important to see because we are often deceived by our own flesh and by the enemy who is real, who prowls about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And will want to tell you this lie, that living for God, that trusting in Jesus completely, he'll want to tell you this lie, that that's how, that is somehow sort of a less than existence. It's sort of a joyless existence that you need to buy into To attain some eternal destiny. And now you're going to have to kind of be a a sort of a Ned Flanders sort of a character. You're going to have to be kind of a prunish, dorky Christian who can't enjoy life. And don't act like you don't know who Ned Flanders is. I know some of you watch that stupid show. What was it? Simpsons or something like that. I don't know what it is. Don't watch it. It's terrible. It's trash. And here is this point that God's glory and our true joy are one and the same. They're not at odds with one another. So when we say this big thought, God's glory, that's not some religious notion out there for fundamentalist people and unair-conditioned country churches and no instruments and fire breathing preachers. It's not this remote, fundamentalist, puritanical. Phrase that has no impact on our lives. No, the glory of God, friends, is all wrapped up in our joy. In fact, the glory of God, God being on display fully, God's rich goodness being on display and enjoyed is fact. It's in fact the only place where true joy is found for the person. Listen to this quote from Jonathan Edwards. He was the great preacher in New England back in the 1700s. He was the mind and the force behind the great awakening that God used in colonial America to open America's hearts to the gospel. One of the most important people in American history, probably the greatest theological mind in American history, and maybe one of the greatest theological minds in the history of the church, Jonathan Edwards wrote this. Now, this is kind of Old-fashioned language, so hang with me now. Come on, come on. Don't—I know you—you're wanting to know whether or not the masters. It doesn't start till three o'clock, so tune in here and wrap yourself around seventeen hundred English here. Listen to me now. And he's speaking about how God's glory and our joy are actually all bound up in the same idea. He says, "God, listen to this. God, in seeking His glory, seeks the good of His creatures. That's us." Because the emanation of his glory, emanation had look it up, the display, the, the diffusion, the overflow, the, the, the shining forth of his glory, the display of his splendor and goodness in the universe. the emanation of his glory implies the happiness of his creatures, and in communicating his fullness for them, he does it for himself. Because their good, which he seeks, is so much in union and in communion with himself. Do you see this? He's saying that his glory and our good are not two separate things on opposite ends of the spectrum. As if God will be holy and you will be punished. No, God is righteous and good and altogether lovely. And when he puts that on display in the universe or in your life and circumstance, it is sweet and rich and deep and abiding and good. In fact, it defines what good is. And so he says, it's in union and communion. God is their good, their excellency. Speaking of the creature now, their excellency, that's us, Their excellency and happiness is nothing but the emanation and expression of God's glory. God, in seeking their glory and happiness, seeks Himself. And in seeking Himself, i.e., Himself diffused, He seeks their glory and happiness. Now, friends, I know that was a little tough to wrap your mind around. We're going to have that on. The notes that we put on the internet on Monday afternoon so you can read that and kind of chew on it all week long. But what that's saying is, is that when God displays His splendor, when God shows Himself, you know, when God shows Himself in innumerable amounts of ways, when His righteousness, when, when a man and wife decide to live their life for God, when they raise a little child in the Lord, when a young man courts a young lady righteously and he keeps his hands off of her before he is married to her and he does that right. And when a young person says no to things that might be pleasurable for a moment but ultimately will destroy them and when people handle their money righteously and see it to give away and rather than to let it dead end on themselves and when Christians serve one another and when they get outside of their comfort zone and when they lay down their preferences in that God is glorified, and in that, you see, that's where true joy exists as God and His way and His character is expressed. In our lives, and even simple mundane things, God receives glory. And it's there, it's in that place, in that moment, when we're laying down our lives, when we're not eating the steak, because it might offend the Christian who thinks that that was offered to Zeus. Or when we say no to this thing which we know we're free to, because we prefer somebody else. In that moment, Jesus and his supreme goodness is on display. And in that moment, the Christian who lives for something other than themselves, finds true joy friends that's why life together with just your spouse in every way that a man and woman are being connected and i'm being a little discreet here because we have kids in the room that's why the the beauty and the sanctity of that is better it's better than anything outside of god's way that's why giving your money and your life and everything that you have towards the advancement of the gospel, it's better than buying silly trinkets on yourself. That's why serving rather than consuming is better, because it's in that place that God is glorified. And it's in that place, friend, where true joy is. And friends, I speak this, I know this to be true for two reasons. Number one, which is less of a good reason, it's because of personal experience. Friends, I have tried glory outside of God, and it always fails. And I know this to be true because this is the echo and the witness of Scripture that when God is glorified, His people revel in joy. And that brings us to the fifth and final statement, and I end on this. The natural consequence of these four statements with this fifth one. Therefore, whatever you do, think about that. Sweeping comprehensiveness of that statement. Therefore, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So whether you buy meat in the butcher shop, do it to the glory of God. Whether you go to work at TSIS or CBNT or AFLAC, do it to the glory of God whether you lead men into combat in Iraq or Afghanistan, young soldier. Do it to the glory of God. When you go through a rough patch in your marriage and you wake up 15 years into it and you wonder, how are we going to make it another 30 years? Do it to the glory of God. When your heart longs for marriage and you're single and there are no viable suitors on the horizon you're wondering whether about hedging your standards or putting yourself in positions where you know you will be compromised and you're tempted with that navigate through the waters of singleness for the glory of God spend your money For the glory of God. Serve your church for the glory of God. Make strategic friendships for the glory of God. Get outside of your zip code and social group for the glory of God. Get outside of your ethnic group for the glory of God. See every relationship as some providential rubbing of shoulders for something far greater than just your good, but for the glory of God. Raise your children for the glory of God. Discipline them for the glory of God. Read your Bible, not as a religious duty, but for the glory of God. Chew on one verse. Scrap the Bible reading plan if you need. Read one verse over and over and over again for a week for the glory of God. Do it all, whatever you do, for the glory of God, for your joy, and for the, as Brother Edwards would say, the emanation of His goodness to all His creatures. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, would you take these words now and would you you do what only you can do? To the unbeliever in here, Lord, would you cause them to see Jesus? Would you help them to realize that ultimately their life will glorify you? either through their obedience to your gospel or through their disobedience and rejection of your gospel. Oh, Lord, that you would be glorified in their life through their receiving your gospel rather than rejecting it. And so, friend, if that's you right now, I'm not asking you to muster up effort or good works or compare yourself to a criminal or to the average of society. I'm asking you to recognize your helplessness and to see Jesus. If you have heard anything that I've said today and if it has pricked your heart, maybe if it's even angered you or if it has caused you to realize that you are not where you need to be, I believe that even that is strong evidence that the Lord is bringing you to life by his glorious gospel. Here's all you need to do. You need to turn. You need to turn away from yourself. And you need to turn and trust towards Jesus. Do that right now. Even you, young boy, young girl, you may be third or fourth grade. And God in his kindness is showing you just how selfishly you have lived. Little brother, little sister, turn from yourself. Don't live for yourself. Trust in Jesus right now. Believe in him. Even as I'm praying right now. You don't need a special magic prayer what you need is saving faith you need to see Jesus right now just say Jesus i trust in you i turn from trust in myself i turn from my sin and i trust you i receive you now just say that young friend look at Jesus see him receive him trust in him and the bible says when you do that you're you're giving evidence of the fact that you have a new heart and you're a christian And now the rest of your life is to be lived in response to his greatness. And you should now orient all of your life towards his glory. And that's where true joy exists. So if you're doing that right now, I'm I'm asking you to lay down all of these false things and to pursue joy in Christ. Do it right now. To my Christian friend in here. Oh, stir your hearts with affection for Jesus, would you? Are you living unstrategically? Are you living selfishly? Whatever you do, come on, do it all for the glory of God. So Lord, would you take these truths? Would you stir our hearts? Would you make people come to life? And we would, re, would we respond to your word now in song and prayer and communion? In Jesus' strong and mighty name, amen.